0: Hiya WorldWorks is sponsored by stamps.com. Buy and print official US postage using your computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code WORLD. And Hiya WorldWorks is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com/world and using the promo code WORLD. This is how your world works. I'm your host, Kevin Dupsik. I'm recording this on Wednesday, November 18th. It's been five days since coordinated terrorist attacks struck the city of Paris. I still don't think it's quite sunk in with me. I certainly haven't made sense of it. I haven't made sense of it yet, and I'm not sure it's the kind of thing I'll ever make sense of. But I do think we have to try so today on the show, we have Articles Editor Sean Manning interviewing Popular Mechanics contributor Elliot Woods. Elliot wrote the December-January 2016 cover story about Iraqi fighter pilots that are training on American F-16s for campaigns against ISIS. Elliot's an experienced war reporter who's embedded in Afghanistan, and he's also a veteran himself who served in Iraq. After that interview, we're going to lighten the mood by taking a look at a completely different approach to fighting evildoers and figure out if it's stupid or amazing. I'll give you a hint. It's something a small-town police department has in common with Michelangelo. Not the Italian, the turtle.
1: With us is the writer of our cover story, Baghdad, Arizona, for the December-January issue, Elliot Woods. Uh, Elliot, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, And wondered if you could tell us a little bit uh, about the history of the Iraqi Air Force and how this group of pilots uh, wound up in the U.S.?
2: The Iraqi Air Force used to be the most powerful air force in the Middle East during the time of Saddam Hussein in the 1980s during the Iran-Iraq War. They had almost a 1,000 aircraft back then, and all of that came crashing down when Saddam Hussein decided to invade Kuwait and everything that followed with the Gulf War and eventually the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. So by the time the Americans occupied Iraq in 2003, there were hardly any operational aircraft left in the Iraqi Air Force, and it took years to rebuild that air force into a force that could actually protect Iraqi airspace. In 2011, then Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki began attempting to purchase F-16s from the United States. And eventually, he arranged to buy 36 F-16s. And pilots were selected to travel to the United States to begin their training. And that training took place at a series of Air Force bases in the United States. And eventually, those F-16 pilots wound up in Tucson, Arizona, where the 162nd fighter wing runs the international f-16 pilot training program
1: so so al maliki he he spends i think the 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 price tag was what's 165 million dollars per plane uh and that price included uh basically sending these pilots over uh for four years of training in the u.s uh so they get to the u.s and you know can you describe a little bit what their experience was uh from you know arriving in the u.s until making it to tucson
2: United States for a couple of years before they eventually made it to Tucson, and their training began in the United States with language training because a lot of these pilot students were coming over with very limited or no English language skills at all. So their first experience in the U.S. was in the Defense Language Institute in Texas at one of the Air Force bases there. And once they had a grasp of the English language that would allow them to enter the training pipeline they went into undergraduate pilot training with the United States Air Force, where they learned to fly some trainer planes, some single-propeller trainer planes, and eventually moved on to the fighter jets that are used to instruct American pilots on fighter tactics and fighter maneuvers. And all of that took two to three years before they eventually wound up in Tucson with the 162nd to begin their F-16 training.
1: And and what is the one sixty second? I know they have a uh, the, these they pretty illustrious history of training uh, international pilots. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about the history of that and and how that ties in?
2: Yeah, so the one sixty second fighter wing is actually a unit of the Arizona Air National Guard, and they've had a training mission for decades now, beginning way back on the I think it's the uh, the Super Saber, one of the old Air Force planes, one of the one of the first. Uh, jets that was really deployed widely around the world. Um, moving on to the A-7 and then eventually the F-16. And they began training American pilots on the F-16 in the 1980s. And then beginning with a contingent from the Netherlands, they started training inter- international pilots in about 1989. And then in the early 1990s, they launched this full-scale international pilot training program. And now they actually have three full-time fighter squadrons that are devoted to training international, and American pilots on the F-16. One of those squadrons is entirely run and managed by the Dutch. So the Dutch actually send their pilots over here where they're trained on Dutch aircraft by Dutch pilots. The Dutch do all of their own maintenance and all of that kind of stuff. But the other two squadrons are comprised of students from all over the world and some American F-16 fighter pilot students.
1: You talk a little about in the article uh, about the terrain of, of Arizona and Tucson and, and how similar that is to to Iraq.
2: The terrain is very similar there in in Arizona near the Mexican border. You have these wide open areas of desert and these low slung mountains that are pretty much devoid of trees. And it's hot. It's really hot and very sunny most of the time. Pretty similar to what you would find in a place like northern Iraq or western Iraq, which is where the primary fight against ISIS is happening now. And of course, a lot of these instructor pilots have flown over that terrain in their service overseas. So they're familiar with the terrain and the climate, and they're also familiar with the tactical threat, which these days mostly involves non-traditional forces who are embedded within civilian populations in towns and villages. They are able to actually simulate real life missions by coordinating with ground forces who are also training in that region. So Tucson is surrounded by all of these bombing ranges like the Barium Goldwater Missile Range and several bombing ranges. And so they're able to plan missions where they coordinate with these ground troops to very realistically simulate how they will be called on to a target in a real life scenario. And that's pretty important for them given what they're going to face back home.
1: You yourself, uh, being in in Tucson, got the experience, got to go up in in, uh, the F-16 a couple of times.
2: Yeah, going up in the F-16 was a pretty incredible experience. Um, For such a fast and powerful plane, it was unbelievable how nimble and light it felt once you're actually inside of it and flying at 500 knots. The canopy has this kind of bubble shape that allows you to see over the edge, and the visibility from inside the the canopy was unbelievable. It was pretty cool to pull these 8G turns and feel the G-suit starting to inflate around my legs and the blood trying to rush out of my head, being resisted by the G-suit. And my primary focus was to not be one out of the 8 and 10 men who throw up on their first F-16 flight. So... (laughs) That's really where I was concentrating the majority of my energy, and thankfully I had a little bit of energy left over to take some photos and shoot some video, which we'll share online.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. Well, Thanksgiving is next week, and you know what that means. No, I'm not talking about turkey, wine, other general gluttony, sitting in front of football, or my personal favorite, planes, trains, and automobiles, but rather the combined effect of all those things, copious amounts of sleep. This year, when you awake from your post-turkey coma, consider how much better you'd feel if you'd been sleeping on a Casper mattress. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for only a fraction of the price. Their mattresses have been exactingly engineered from a hybrid of premium latex foam and memory foam, and they don't cost $1,500 or more like other premium mattresses, but as little as $500 for a twin and only $950 for a king. The best part? They're made in America, and you can buy them risk-free. You get free delivery and a 100-day return period. That's something we can all be thankful for. So check it out. Get ready for Turkey Day with this special offer, $50 towards any purchase at www.casper.com world when you use the promo code world. That's casper.com world promo code world.
1: How this story came to us uh, was a small news item about a pilot who had crashed in the Arizona desert, Rasad Mohamed Sidi Hassan. Could you tell us a little bit about Hassan and, and sort of how he ties into all of this?
2: Hassan had been an Iraqi Air Force pilot under Saddam Hussein at the very end of the Iran-Iraq war. That's pretty much when he graduated from the Iraqi Air Force Academy, and he got into the cockpit of his first jet and started flying right around the time that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. So he was very quickly grounded and didn't have much flight time as an Iraqi jet pilot, from what I've gathered, or was able to gather. Um, So he emerged in the new Iraqi Air Force when the F-16s came into the game as one of the prospective flight leads and possibly squadron commander. So he was 45 years old and was significantly older than most of the other guys in the training squadron and a leader to them, for sure. And I think they looked to him for moral support when they were homesick or having trouble with their families back home. And I know that his loss in June of last year when he crashed his plane into the desert in Arizona was deeply saddening to everybody in the Arizona contingent.
1: So you you, you talked to uh, a pilot who we call Nawaf, we call Nawaf, it's not his real name, uh, out of fear that he and his family might be targeted by ISIS, the Iraq Ministry of Defense required you to use a pseudonym for him and would only let you know how you view him by phone. Uh, but he still gave you uh, a very detailed idea of what life is like for him there
2: life for the Iraqi pilots is similar to what life would be like for any 20 something uh elite military pilot station in the United States they drive fast cars and they like to go out and enjoy the nightlife they're not too far away from Vegas so they like to get off base sometimes and go up to Vegas but uh now that they're in Tucson they're actually living in their own apartments uh, off base. There, there's not any space for them to live on base because the 162nd is there at Tucson International Airport and they're just a national guard unit. So they mostly live by themselves in single bedroom apartments and they have a pretty tight community among each other. They get together for Iraqi meals and they've tried to learn how to cook and sometimes they're on the phone with their moms learning recipes <laughs> from Iraq so that they can have a little taste of home while they're there together in their off time. But Really, for them, life is pretty busy because they're flying three to four days a week and they're in the classroom, sometimes 10 or 12 hours a day. So it's a pretty exhausting job. They don't have a ton of free time. But when they do, I think their free time really resembles what uh, an American pilot their age would would do. But it's certainly true that when they go home to Iraq, their lives will be nothing like that. When they go home to Iraq, they will not even be able to leave the base where their aircraft are stationed because the security threat to them as elite pilots of this new F-16 Air Force would be so high.
1: Right, and the security threat uh, is primarily due to ISIS. And you talk a little bit about in the article how uh, these guys who have not been back to Iraq since they came over, most of them for some of them for four years straight, haven't seen their friends or family or, or even set foot outside of the U.S., uh, and they're sitting there in Tucson watching ISIS run roughshod over their country.
2: Yeah, I think it's been really frustrating for them to be stuck in the training pipeline for years while the war is intensifying back home. I mean, when they, when most of them came over to the United States, uh, ISIS existed in its nascent forms and as a collection of various um, Mujahideen groups that were devoted to creating what is now known as the Islamic State But they were really on their heels, and they really burst onto the scene in 2014 when they captured Mosul. And since then, the outright war in western and northern Iraq and in Syria has intensified. And that entire time, these guys have been in classrooms and flying over Arizona and Texas.
1: And you talk a little bit towards the end of the piece about how Nuaf is excited to go back home, obviously, to see his family and and see his friends, and and obviously to actually engage in, in the operation that he's been training for. But at the same time, you say he's a little bit reluctant because he has grown so accustomed to the American way of life.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty extreme prospect, returning from the freedom of the American highway and an American city like Tucson with this vibrant nightlife and culture and with no car bombs going off on the street or anything like that to go back to total lockdown in the midst of essentially a civil war where you're going to be flying missions with real weapons on your wings that are that you're going to be dropping on real people um that's a pretty serious departure and really he's going to be returning to an alternate world one that he grew up in but one that he's not been a part of for some years now. And I think his hesitation is probably, from what he told me, representative of how some of the other pilots feel as well. So, you know, if you're a pilot from the Netherlands and you're living in Tucson, it's like a great foreign exchange experience. And then you get to go back to the Netherlands and everything's more or less the same. But when you're a pilot from Iraq, you're almost given refuge in the United States, the same kind of refuge that millions of refugees are clamoring for right now. You've got that safety and security, but you know the whole time that it's only for a short time before you go back to the place where your family still lives and is still threatened every day by this violence.
1: Right. All right. Well, Elliot, thanks for your great work on this story and for taking the time to talk about it today. That was Elliot Woods. The story is called Baghdad, Arizona. You can read the full version in the December-January issue of Popular Mechanics.
0: By now you know Stamps.com can help you save time by avoiding the post office. But you're a compassionate person, so maybe you're worried about your favorite post office. Well, I'm here to tell you that like the post office in the little town of Havre, Montana, it's going to be just fine. This is episode two of Profiles and Postage. The post office in Haver was built in 1932, added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1986, and abandoned in 1985. A friend of mine who grew up in Haver once told me of a winter where it reached 50 below zero. That kind of cold takes a toll in an empty building. But in 2011, an industrious couple bought it, all 35,000 square feet, for the cost of a modest two-bedroom home. Along with their three kids, they now live there, and after a few years of renovation, it's got office space, and the sorting room is a wedding venue that hosts the happiest days of people's lives. So don't cry for the post office. Cry for the time you waste going there. And right now, use our promo code WORLD to get this special offer from Stamps.com. A four-week free trial, up to $55 in free postage, and a digital scale to automatically calculate the exact postage you need. That's Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter WORLD. All right, so now we're going to switch to something a little bit lighter for today's edition of Stupid or Amazing. We're going to take a look at something happening at a police department in Northern California. Sean Manning, you're sticking around from your interview earlier. Thanks. This is your first time on Stupid or Amazing, I think.
1: I know. I'm happy to be part of the club now.
2: Yeah,
0: and executive editor Peter Martin, you're back. You're one of our favorite contestants. I didn't realize, but thank you. There's there's no winner here. No, I can be the favorite. But there are losers. I often feel like a loser after this. Uh, so today's um, today's subject actually hits kind of close to home for me. This is a town that's a few hours north of where I grew up. It's uh, the town of Anderson, California, and their police department is introducing a new impact weapon, I believe that's the technical term, for their officers, and it's nunchucks, which you might be familiar with from Bruce Lee movies or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, so the idea is that this is something they can use in place of batons, which you can pretty much only use to hit people nunchucks you can do more things
3: with you can sweep the leg with a baton i i 've seen someone like you grab the ankle and you pull it towards you It was not on me, but I thought on TV or something I'm sure it wasn 't on you <laughs> i 'm sure um, so after you have to do a
0: 16 hour training course as an officer and then you 're certified to use this thing. Um, nunchucks are legal in California. I discovered it unless you 're an officer who 's completed this training course, um, but the idea is that you know there 's been a lot of news stories recently about police being overly aggressive, and they thought maybe with nunchucks they'll, they'll look a little nicer. We want to know, stupid or
3: amazing.
1: Well, I think that, what, what were you saying about the, the perception of, of less hostility involved with nunchucks?
3: Right, something you swing around in your head potentially does not make you look <laughs> less aggressive as a, as a police right. officer.
1: And, and I feel like there is the compulsion that any time you touch nunchucks... You cannot resist the siren song of smashing them against something like you just th- that's th- there's a sort of innate uh, presence in the nunchucks that, that that compels you to do that well, this is why they're illegal yeah. if you're not an officer <laughs> who's completed training yes yes, that's fair.
3: I will say I thought originally very stupid, um, and then Sean passed along a video that was very useful to me at least
1: well, so that video was by uh, the inventor of the uh, orcut it's called the orcut police nunchako (laughs) because nunchucks is sort of a bastardization it's the official term is nunchako uh but this they were developed by uh this guy named kevin uh orcutt and he was a policeman from Thornton, Colorado, and he actually uh, developed it in the mid-1980s. And it sort of caught on, especially in California. And then uh, as the taser came into vogue, it sort of uh, receded a little bit. And now, as you said, with, with uh, a lot of the police brutality, and uh, that's sort of now coming back in, into, into favor.
0: Yeah, so I do think, you know, you watch this video and they demonstrate how you can use the... Um, I guess just in case anybody's not clear, we should actually say what this. <laughs> is. I just realized you described it. So it's two. It's it's your classic. You got two sticks, and then there's a connector in the middle that's flexible. So when you see this in like a martial arts movie, it's usually like wooden with like right. a chain in the middle. But this one that uh, Kevin Orcutt designed is actually plastic handles right. with a nylon rope in between. So part of the idea is that you can use that nylon rope like to wrap somebody's wrist or to grab their their ankle or something. Um, to sort of neutralize them without just you know smashing them, as you pointed <laughs> out, and I actually think that that's not terrible. It's not a terrible idea. It's hard not to. It's hard to take it seriously because I'm just <laughs> thinking about you know Master Splinter,
1: right? But it's not a terrible <laughs> idea, right? Well, I think too with with you see, watch the video of of Kevin Orca doing this. I mean, the guy is also a first degree uh, black belt in Jucato and he's part of the uh, Martial Arts Hall of Fame. So he's doing was very fluid and seamlessly. I wonder if you said there's, there's what, uh, only a dozen or so hours of training that go into it, uh, if that's enough to really, you know, what that in fact teaches you.
3: Yeah, that gets you like a green belt.
1: Right, right. So I think that's probably just only the basics. But, um, but also I, I feel like if, if you're going to be introducing martial arts practices to uh, law enforcement, why not just get rid of the weapons altogether, and just make everybody a black belt in judo or some sort of martial arts so that you can just diffuse the problem hand to hand. Just get rid of the middleman. Ooh, That's I didn't even think about that. Stupid or point. amazing?
0: Part two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sean's idea. Right. So do, okay, so here's the question: Do you think, you know, Peter, you said you claim to not have any experience with being brought down by a baton, but supposing you are in a situation where that, you know, that was in the cards, would you be? Would you feel like the police were more compassionate if instead of pulling out like the billy club? They pull out a nunchaku?
3: Not at all. I think if they pull that, well, one, it seems funny. I don't know if you're in the process of committing a crime, (laughs) if you would stop and laugh, but it just seems like a joke, like a 14-year-old policeman who's going to pull that out and do it. Um, I also don't know if, like Sean was saying, if you're not good at martial arts, if you have your 12 hours of training, how are you going to catch an ankle, catch a wrist? And there's not (laughs) a lot of extra slack in between the two um, pieces, the two batons. Yeah, There was no room for error there. Like You have to get it around or somebody has a fat wrist. You're in trouble.
0: <laughs> so okay, so normally the mood in the room is pretty clear by this point I think, but I'm honestly not sure what we're all thinking. So come down on the side. Stupid or amazing? Sean Manning.
1: I think it's amazing. I think it I like the idea that at least you're introducing I mean certainly it's 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 no more I would think no more aggressive or violent than a baton but i do like the idea that it has some versatility in the way it can be used um you know it's not just to bash it can be used as sort of restraint like you know plastic cuffs or or a way to sort of lead someone away uh i think i think i my vote is is for amazing anything that involves martial arts you just have to err on the side of amazing
3: <laughs> peter martin if the policemen are martial artists i would say amazing right. for the average policeman i think it's very silly. And you, they should just stick to pepper spray because you can't kill anybody. right?
1: And you wonder how many, um, how many disability claims will be filed by policemen who've just whacked themselves in the right. face. Right? These, these, <laughs> these or nunchuck attacks. elbow could be a thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, stupid? Okay, stupid. and I can't believe I'm going to hear myself say this, but I, I'm, I'm with you, Sean. I think amazing. I think this is actually a pretty good idea that has some serious cultural you know, roadblocks in its way, but I think it's an amazing idea. I wouldn't have thought this at the beginning, but police with nunchucks, according to the editors of Popular Mechanics, by two
1: to one vote, amazing. Gotta draw the line at the throwing stars though.
0: Ninja 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 so that's our show. How your world works is produced by Jack Dylan. We're really here. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Brian D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes And while you're there, leave us a comment We'd love to know what you think You can also check out our sister show The most useful podcast ever And if you want to read more about today's episode Including nunchakus and Iraqi fighter pilots Visit our website popularmechanics.com And while you're on popularmechanics.com Don't forget that you can subscribe to the print And digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine For just $13.99 for one year I'm Kevin Dubczyk